You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast, where we remember the past to inspire the future. I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Today is a special day for us as uh, we are thinking about our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions and focusing this week, uh, the week of prayer, on um, just uh, remembering the needs of the world, the lostness of the world, uh, but also remembering uh, our responsibility to pray, to give, to go, to send. Um, to support those that we have sent. And so as Southern Baptists, one of the ways that God has uh, used to help us in this is is um, this special offering that uh, first was suggested by Lottie Moon around Christmas time and eventually would be named in her honor. And so to help us um, on not only encouraging us and just praising God for all of the faithfulness and generosity of his people uh, through the years and through this Lottie Moon offering, uh, we have a, a special guest back with us the second time this season, and this is Dr. Jerry Rankin. Um, he'll not only talk about the offering and some of its impact, but he and his wife uh, and several others took a special journey a number of years ago where they retraced uh, the life and steps of Lottie Moon, and we get the privilege of of reliving that journey with them. So, uh, Dr. Rankin, thank you for being our guest today. Well, it's good to be with you, and uh, there's a a lot of nostalgia in reflecting on uh, this particular subject that is of vital importance to the support of our missionaries, as well as just the personal experiences of identifying with and going to the places where Lottie Moon served uh, and lived, both uh, grew up in Virginia near the International Mission Board uh, in Richmond, as well as uh, traveling to places where she served in China. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. There's a book, um, it's called A Journey of Faith and Sacrifice, Retracing the Steps of Lottie Moon, uh, written by Jerry Rankin. And there's photography that is out of this world uh, by Don Rutledge in the book. Uh, it's just such a wonderful kind of coffee table book. Um, it's You have to kind of get a used copy out there. I wish we could find a way to reprint that. But we'll put a link to uh, that as a used book uh, out there. And um, But before we, we talk about the book and its contents and your journey, uh, Dr. Rankin, just set the context. I mean, how significant is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions to Southern Baptists and our efforts to get the gospel to the nations? Well, we we attribute credit to Lottie Moon for inspiring and challenging Southern Baptists to take an annual offering for the support of International Mission Board. Uh, it was started in 1888 and Raising these funds for the support of international missionaries uh, actually gave impetus to starting and forming the Women's Missionary Union, who has uh, sponsored uh, the offering and sustained it uh, for more than 100 years now. Uh, So uh, 
People often ask, uh, we realize that uh, mission education has diminished in a lot of our churches, and members are not aware of who Lottie Moon was, and some are not even using her name in taking a, a, mission, a mission offering, a global mission offering each year or so forth, uh, and others are, are just not familiar with who she was and why the offering is attributed to her. Uh, you always hear things in churches like people say, when are we going to get that lady paid off? We've been giving all this money to her every year, uh, you know, having no idea uh, who she was. And so uh, the inspiration for it grew out of just uh, my coming to Richmond as a new president and uh, was intrigued to find that her roots were there nearby. And in fact, uh, the WMU was often sponsoring Lottie Moon trips, and people would visit the uh, International Mission Board offices on those trips, going to where Lottie was born and grew up and where she taught school and where she was saved and her family lived and so forth. And so, uh, uh, you know, we visited some of those places in uh, Viewmont uh, near Scottsville where her father uh, had a plantation, Hardware Baptist Church, where she taught Sunday school and uh, at Crewe, uh, Virginia, where she's buried. Uh, uh, she was saved at First Baptist Church, Charlottesville, and just so many stories entwined in her life and her call to, to missions. Uh, actually, David Button, our vice president for public relations uh, in 1995, I'd just become president less than two years earlier, and Vane Payne, one of our uh, Long-term employees, a real visionary, directed our, our reprographics uh, and video productions, got the idea, well, let's uh, record a visit to these places to try to reintroduce Lottie Moon and humanize her uh, as a, you know, not just as a promotional uh, icon, but the significance of her life. And that grew into, well, if we're going to go to these places, uh, let's go to China as well. And uh, so several uh, objectives of that and the concept of the coffee table book in order to have the photography of uh, Don Rutledge, uh, outstanding prize-winning photographer we were privileged to have on our staff and videographers who actually produced uh, a video uh, excerpts of highlighting the trip uh, reintroducing Lottie Moon to Southern Baptists, as well as our being able to identify how contemporary missionaries and even through my own leadership uh, gave us kind of an introduction to Southern Baptists as well uh, to reflect with Lottie Moon on our service in Southeast Asia for 23 years and our, our call and to uh, give a parallel of missionaries still being called to that journey of faith and sacrifice and going to places of hardship and lostness like Lottie Moon did to, to China. And, and a third motive uh, came into that of highlighting the tremendous movement that was emerging in China today and the cost of early pioneers uh, leading uh, in that effort and on their shoulders, God was continuing to move today. And, and Dr. Rankin, um, as we get ready to go into that story, um, one of the things that, that uh, we wanted to do is just 
you mentioned uh, the importance of the offering. Um, as of this is uh, uh, 2019, um, what give us an approximate number of how much money Southern Baptists together by God by God's grace and to His glory have given through this Lottie Moon Christmas offering? Well, uh, over yeah, more than a uh, hundred and twenty years now. Uh, Southern Baptists have given accumulatively more than $3 billion to send and support missionaries over all these years through this offering. And it started out as kind of a supplement uh, to the missionary support from the convention that eventually became the co-optive program. And uh, about 40 years ago, actually, uh, equaled the amount that we were getting from churches through the cooperative program to support the Foreign Mission Board and has now uh, exceeded that amount in just this one-time annual offering that our churches give. To, and basically, most of it goes, well, all of it goes to, to overseas costs, basically the support of missionaries. And in, in 1987, Lottie Moon actually wrote the letter uh, pleading for new workers to come and for the women that were providing support for her, basically in Virginia and in Cartersville, Georgia, where she had taught school, to raise money to send two more new single women to help her in her ministry. And in 1888, they've sponsored and uh, coordinated that offering and raised $2,000 and we're able to send three instead of two missionaries uh, to help work with her. And, and I, I just need to share a quote uh, from that letter. And she was alluding to what she had heard that Methodist women were raising funds for mission at Christmas time. And so she stated in these letters to, to these women's groups, need it be said why the week before Christmas is chosen, alluding to Methodist women, is not the festive season when families and friends exchange gifts in memory of the gift laid on the altar of the world for the redemption of human lives, the most appropriate time to consecrate a portion from abounding riches and scant poverty to send forth the good tidings of great joy into all the earth. Well, that was the challenge and the impetus that gave birth to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering that has continued to be blessed uh, over the years. And initially, it was uh, after that first offering of sending two two new workers to China, it became known as the uh, an offering for China, and then eventually grew into an offering to support missions all over the world. And I don't think we can overstate the importance of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering to the support of our missionaries and the work of the foreign, the international mission board uh, and the proclamation of the gospel around the world. Well, for a long time, and it was just an offering of uh, the women uh, in their mis local mission societies that later became women's missionary union. And of course, uh, you know, they, they really didn't have any income, you know, household expenses and uh, people in the South weren't really affluent at that time. And, so we have fantastic stories like in uh, pictures in the book of mite boxes, these little 
little ditty boxes that they would put on their wind, windowsill in their kitchen and put coins in. Uh, and the goal was every week to put two cents into the mite box for missions. Two pennies every week was their goal. And through that, they just uh, raised such awesome sums uh, collectively. Dr. Rankin, and just you mentioned this, and I I asked senior leadership just to make sure at a current level, just to see how important this offering is to um, the support. And they said that uh, now the Lottie Moon Christmas offering accounts for 60%. So it is, uh, it, without it, I mean, you just imagine we would not be able to do um, uh, uh, what we do. So 60% of the income of the International Mission Board today. And um, so with that mindset of just how important Lottie Moon uh, was, how her enduring legacy of encouraging us to, to pray, give, and go uh, is, uh, you guys set out on this incredible journey uh, so just um, uh, tell us uh, who goes with you and where do you start? Well, uh, we, we started in Virginia, where where she was uh, born, near Scottsville, and grew up, uh, uh, went, went to school there. And uh, her uh, schooling at uh, uh, the places uh, there near Charlottesville, and she was a very intellectual uh very uh, astute, but she wasn't very spiritually uh, inclined. And so there's a uh, wonderful testimony of her conversion at First Baptist Church Charlottesville uh, in her later years as a student. And J.M. Broadus, one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention and later founded Southern Seminary, was the pastor uh, at that time. And so uh, just going back to these these places, reviewing her life, and uh, her wanting to go to uh, to China, but single women were not allowed to go as missionaries. But uh, after the initial president uh, was, uh, uh, had uh, James Taylor, who served for 25 years, was replaced by Henry Allen Tupper. Uh, the door was opened in 1871, and interestingly, her sister Edmonia preceded her uh, under appointment to, to India, but she immediately began to uh, make plans to go and join Edmonia in China and left in 1873. She was teaching in Cartersville, Georgia, rode the train through Virginia, uh, back to visit family to Baltimore, and then across the country to San Francisco, and then boarded the ship with other missionaries, uh, never expecting to return. Uh, there was no such thing as a furlough when missionaries left. In fact, we have stories of those going to West Africa who actually uh, packed uh, their belongings in, in coffins, knowing that they would die uh, on the field. Uh so it, it a lot of reminiscence. We were the last of the boat people. My family and I uh, traveled from San Francisco to Indonesia by ship, as all missionaries had done up until that time. We left in 1970, but we were the last group of missionaries to actually go by ship. And so wow. uh, uh, we felt a lot of nostalgia reading about her five-week uh, 
journey by ship to Shanghai. Yeah, that's an amazing. You, that's you. You ended quite an era of of uh, <laughs> ship travel. Uh, it, tell us though, when you were there outside of Charlottesville, which not terribly far from Richmond, but um, uh, Lottie Moon. You mentioned she was intellectual, um, but her family was no ordinary family. I mean, just tell us a little bit about Viewmont uh, Estate that she grew up on in the pre Civil War era. Um, what 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 would it, what was that like as you looked at it? I've never been, but I would love to hear what you uh, say it was like. Well, it is a very impressive estate, uh, estate, uh, and there's a, a stone marker there at the driveway off the highway uh, with this huge, beautiful plantation house there now in the rolling hills. Her father was a prosperous landowner, uh, 1,500 acres, and so... Uh, but he died uh, while she was still quite young, and uh, it was a challenge for her mother to maintain the estate. And uh, But she flourished socially and academically at a Virginia Female Seminary, what later became Hollins College and Albemarle Female Institute uh, in, in Charlottesville. But but seeing that affluence in those what was obvious in those years is impressive when you reflect on her self-imposed poverty in China, uh, just such a distinct contrast to her uh, luxury and social life growing up, uh, which reflects uh, it was a life of of sacrifice and faith to follow the Lord. And and you you see too. I think you mentioned it that though she had a great education, a great mind, had grown up in a uh, a culture in the South that there was Christianity at every turn. She herself, her was not a believer. She had to have a a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and, a, and her own personal conversion. And as you mentioned, that happened uh, through a, some revival meetings uh, with John Broadus. Um, pastor First Baptist Church Charlottesville and also uh, the founder of that school she was attending. And and so without that, I mean, without uh, a personal conversion, there would be, um, uh, she wouldn't have had anything to go tell uh, the nations about. Well, obviously, it was a sincere, uh, authentic experience as she, uh, her skepticism and cynicism regarding religion, uh, just totally vanished. She devoted herself to the study of Scripture and uh, God's Word and, uh, you know, dedicated her life fully to the Lord. And, uh, of course, the, this, the book and the research and the journey helped us to reflect on those kinds of uh, callings and sacrifice are not unique to a former era but are, are continuing into contemporary among contemporary missionaries as well. And are going to a place like China, not expecting to return, or uh, somewhat like people going to some of the uh, most challenges, uh, hostile, closed countries uh, today with that same sense of sacrifice. Uh, it was often reflected on her, the passage from Hebrews 11.38, uh, of those who live by faith and were tortured and martyred and sacrificed their lives for the sake of the kingdom, that these were those of whom the world is not worthy. And while that certainly reflected Lottie Moon and her peers and their commitment and sacrifice, uh, that 
thought and that concept, that characteristic emerged when we reflected on uh, missionaries who were martyred in Iraq and in Yemen and uh, other places in the 21st century. Mm, yes. Yeah, the, the, the specifics of the sacrifice and the things that are given up are different th- down through the years, but they're still sacrifices nonetheless. Yeah, I, I, I think it's good to just kind of reflect on her life. She once made the statement, I am immortal till my work is done. You know, she just felt God's hand upon her, and uh, she was fully poured out her life, you know, as long as uh, uh, God gave her that opportunity. And, of course, uh, it's well known she died on a ship on her way home uh, in uh, Kobe Harbor in Japan in 1912, after literally starving to death during famine and drought in China, and when she was giving her food to the starving Chinese people who just flooded into her compound. And I have always been moved and impressed and identified with her. Her life verse was Acts 20, 24. But I do not count my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And and to me, that has always been so emotional and just a powerful testimony uh, of her life, which uh, begins to reflect is worthy of our commemorating through our, our annual offering. One thing that I want to mention before we get to China, and you, you mentioned Cartersville, but um, she, Lottie finishes there um, at, in Charlottesville, her formal education at the end of like uh, 1859. But there is a long period. She goes back to Viewmont. Uh, she's on the estate. That's when she's actually working as Sunday school teacher there at Hardware. But in the midst of the Civil War, I mean, uh, things are just uh, the economy of the South is being devastated. So in 1863, she sets out basically using her education to become a tutor in very, for various wealthy families, uh, for their children uh, in various states, ends up going to Kentucky and then to Georgia. But the thing that strikes me is, is that from the time she graduates uh, school in 1859, it's about almost 14 years before she ends up on the mission field. Now, she didn't feel that call the whole time, but it's a long, long period. And I know sometimes we'll have young people at our church that sense a call, and they're just like, I just want to go right now. I don't want any more preparation. Just send me, you know? And I I think that we need to realize that there is um, sometime this delay and that even that can be a part of God's maturing and of God's preparation uh, for people to be ready uh, to go out and face those challenges. Yeah, and we're we're not uh, that that aware of the circumstances, but when you put it together and her, like say, a conversion in '59 and finishing school, uh, and the Civil War emerged over the next few years, and her mother uh, and her siblings, you know, trying to maintain their their estate and their farm with all of that going on. So she stayed in Virginia, 
and like you said, tutored uh, children of other families, because I imagine, you know, people going off to the war, the schools were closed, they weren't being maintained, and so it was a time of crisis, both for their family, uh, you know, their 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 land and uh, support of the family and so forth, but Later, after the war, she did go to Danville, Kentucky, and then to Cartersville, and uh, there were some connections. She had an uncle uh, living in Cartersville, uh, a Presbyterian pastor who actually went to uh, overseas to Judea uh, as a, a missionary with Disciples of Christ Church, and, uh, and there is an account, a testimony of her pastor in Cartersville speaking on missions when she she literally felt the call and made the commitment uh, to go and then was uh, stifled by the fact that they weren't sending single single women. But it's, it's interesting to, to reflect on, on that because uh, soon afterwards, once they begin to emerge, uh, as we're all aware over the years, single women were a essential and prominent uh, mission force. In, in all of our mission work overseas and have been assigned to almost every conceivable type of ministry, not just teaching and social work, but doctors, agriculturalists, theological education, business, support roles uh, have been a very strategic part of our mission growth and success over the years. So she got in on the groundwork of that. So in your, did you guys go to Cartersville? Oh yeah, yeah. We we had a big mission rally with uh, Delano O'Brien, president of the National WMU, and uh, missionaries uh, who were in China at this time, being there and giving testimonies. Uh, uh, yeah, we we retraced those steps. Do they went to the train station where she got on the train to leave? Do they have like? Um, uh, plaques and and stuff. It looks like they do to commemorate different places that she might have lived or or, or in there in Cartersville. Oh yeah, and uh, they were everywhere at uh, Crew Baptist Church in Scottsville, the Hardware Baptist Church, and uh, well documented. So um, we pick up the story that she leaves the train station in Cartersville. She'll end up going, I guess, to. Baltimore at some point, and then from Baltimore to San Francisco. Um, tell us now, I, I guess you pick up the story on the China end. Uh, tell us where she would have landed and where you guys go to to reconnect with the Lottie story. Well, there, there are a lot of uh, anecdotes uh, related to all of these, but to kind of just give us an overview, most of our Southern Baptist work at the time was in China. We did have some missionaries by that time who had gone to Palestine. Another prominent field was was West Africa, uh, in Nigeria and Liberia. Uh, a few had gone, but the whole flow of missionaries was to, to China. In fact, when the Foreign Mission Board, Southern Baptist Convention was organized in the Foreign Mission Board, they picked up support of some Southern Baptists who were already in China. Uh, the halls and some others. So there was a, by this time, there was a, a South China mission uh, centered in Canton. Of course, we can comprehend how large China is. Uh, then there was the Central China mission inland from Shanghai. 
And Lottie went to the uh, North China Mission in the Shandong province, which was much newer and had uh, fewer missionaries. And she was met by Matthew and Eliza Yates and T.P. and Martha Crawford, uh, legendary uh, missionaries, a lot of stories about them, and some conflicts with them that Lottie Moon had over the years. But they met her in uh, in uh, Shanghai, and then they took a boat up to Shifu, uh, which is a port in the Shantung Peninsula, which is now called Yantai, and it was quite a prominent city, uh, maybe with as many as uh, 100,000 people. It was where American Consulate was located and uh, was really a business and provincial and commercial uh, center for all of that area. And uh, so uh, Yantai was, uh, you know, prominent, but then she went by... uh, they call it a shantz, you know, uh, kind of a, uh, a, a chair, covered chair with uh, a canopy over it uh, with two poles that either coolies or horses would take for two days uh, up to Ting Chow was the basic center of her uh, uh, her work is called Ping Tu today. And so that's that's where we pick up a lot of her work. She met uh, J.B. Hartwell, uh, a pro- very prominent missionary whose wife had died. Uh, and while it took her, it was 60 miles and took her two days, uh, of course, we had a bus ride less about 40 minutes from uh, Yangtai up to uh, Ping Tu, where that Do- was. So, y- uh, Dr. Rain, let, you, me, you, let me ask a question here. Uh, just to make sure. So you you go from Yentai to Ting Chow. I think that's actually that's Ping Lai. Ping Tu is going to be the one inland. Um, right, Ping Lai. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Ping, Ping Lai. Lai. And but this is going to be kind of a hub for her, uh, even though she'll she'll do different things. Tell us about what what does Ting Chow look like when you were there, and what what were uh, what was its significance? You've got a beautiful picture here. I did not know about them celebrating Fourth of July. That's a great story in and of itself. But anyways, tell us about uh, uh, Tung Chao Ping Lai. Well, uh, I mean, they were both uh, Chinese cities, you know, very little uh, foreign influence even today. So it was quite intriguing. And of course, much more congested with the population growth, uh, and when Lottie Moon was there, but the cobblestone streets and kind of the the clay brick houses with uh, you know the the lead uh, the the red uh, clay roof shingles and everything, uh, you know you could just picture that era uh, had not not changed uh, so much. And and you mentioned, and we're just without without getting into it, but we had. Um... Uh, the J.B. Hartwells, and we had uh, T.P. and Martha Crawford. Um, but let's just, we just have to have absolute uh, uh, honesty about it. Missionaries don't always get along and don't always uh, have the same philosophy of missions. And and uh, the Hartwells, especially T.P. and, and then J.B. Hartwell, the two men, they actually had a pretty strong clash. And you end up with two Baptist churches in this one town um, because of just different mission philosophies related to subsidies and, and things like that. 
Well, yeah, th- th- this is evident, and uh, it certainly uh, obliterates any idealism concerning the piety of, <laughs> uh, of missionaries then and today as well. Uh, as the policy was, uh, Edmonia was already there, and so Lottie Moon moved in with her, and they had to stay with the Crawfords. Uh, and worked under his his authority. So single women were not allowed to have their own place to live and so forth. And uh, as we, we get throughout all of this, Lottie Moon was a very uh, uh, strong-willed and dominant personality, very opinionated, and that didn't work very well. And so the prolific letters that we have in our archives from Lottie Moon began. <laughs> Right. And very early on, asking for her own place to live. Oh, and I mean, there's a big volume of these published letters. Someone published recently and edited, and uh, I I reflected on those reading a lot. I'm his president. Hey, we still get those kind of letters from missionaries, (laughs) disgruntled missionaries, conflict, and so forth. Text message now. (laughs) But she uh, appealed for her own house, and uh, and of course her appeal prevailed uh, because it just wasn't working out living with the Crawfords. But uh, one of the sad parts of the story is Edmonia had a nervous breakdown and just depression and was not able to cope and adjust to China. So uh, she had already been there a couple of years, though, but three years uh, after Lottie Moon arrived, she had to accompany Edmonia uh, back to, uh, uh, to the States, to, to the field. And uh, so she was back in Virginia and visited her churches in Cartersville and Danville and various places uh, and so another one of her campaigns to go back when she went back was appealing that uh, a periodic furlough be granted to missionaries so that they could be uh, refreshed, uh, you know, mentally as well as spiritually and physically and recover from the uh, awesome cost on their, their lives and their bodies, uh, living cross-culturally in such austere circumstances, as well as uh, communicating to the churches to appeal for funding and support and and new missionaries. So this was kind of her campaign, her thing, uh, appealing for more missionaries, appealing for support. And so uh, it, it was not until after uh, Tupper had uh, re- retired that furloughs were finally approved in 1891. Interesting. That what an I mean, she has her imprint is just all over our our missions organization. It's just oh, and we haven't even gotten into the indigenity of local work and identifying with Chinese, uh, which really created waves with the the veteran missionaries there. Well, and we will we'll hope. But let me just ask because I see some pictures here, and I want to talk about it. You're there in Ping Lai. And the thing I would love to hear, we want this story to intersect with where uh, Christianity was at the point that you made this journey, which is now, you know, over 20 years ago. But what was it like going to church there in that city where Lottie Moon and the Hartwells and 
the uh, other missionaries had had so many of our missionaries had ministered. What what was that experience like for you and for Bobby? Well, that that first experience was uh, at Monument Street Church in Peng Lai. Uh, she lived nearby, down the cobblestone street, and there was a big monument that an ancient warlord had built uh, there in his memory, why it was called Monument Street. And the church was right there in view of the monument. And Crawford had started this church and pastored it for more than 40 years. Uh, but there's a, a, a monument and a bliss uh, there in front of the church that tells about Lottie Moon, but makes no mention of Crawford. Wow. <laughs> uh and really, the history is uh, he was known for dissension. He was critical, a domineering spirit. In fact, he was he had led the uh, most of the North China Mission later to separate from the Foreign Mission Board because he said we're accountable to our sending churches in a very strong landmark uh, perspective, and did, did did not respect the authority uh, of the. Uh, Foreign Mission Board, telling them what to do and establishing policies and so forth. So he was this kind of, of person. Uh, the church had been closed for many years by the the Red Guard, and it had just opened in 1988, just uh, seven years prior to our visit. So this was another aspect and uh, motivating our trip because Things were opening. There was tremendous evangelistic response and growth in churches that we wanted to communicate to Southern Baptists. But uh, the very old pastor in his 80s uh, had been there many, many years, even though it was closed. It nurtured the members, and it opened with 20 members. Uh, And here it was, 1995. There were 400 packed in for worship. They baptized 60 the year before. And uh, even though it was in Chinese, it was an emotional service, just hearing this packed church singing with passion and fervor. And uh, some of the people with us were translating, and it was a sermon on uh, related some of the persecution of not having Bibles and then finding a Bible. And the pastor was just crying as he held it to his cheeks, uh, you know, how precious that, that was. Uh, and uh, the a government tour guide that was, of course, accompanying us had never been into a church. And when we came out afterwards, uh, he was just emotional, tears went in his eyes and said, my heart was just so moved by these people and their singing and what that man was saying <laughs> up there. Uh, so it, it was a very touching and emotional experience. You know, there's a there's a picture in the book of a service at the Monument Street Church there, and everyone is in the aisles on their knees praying as open Bibles are sitting. And you know, I'm thinking about this very rough wooden floor, these wooden benches, uh, pews in the church, and people down on their knees. And what a what a picture of of the dependency and reliance on on God and the Holy Spirit there among these believers. And I'm thinking, how often do we see this picture in our own churches? And I think, how often do I see it in my own church? You know, and not not often, but yet here it is in this picture of these believers down on their knees. 
Yeah, we we were able to go to another church service later when we returned to Yantai, uh, which was a larger city. And uh, their pictures, the pastor of the church, uh, there were 2,000 members. They had baptized 600 the previous year. Uh, they were overseeing and nurturing over 100 meeting points and house churches. Uh, and uh, a representative of the China Christian Council, who we were interacting with and accompanying us, uh, reported 600,000 believers in the Shandong province alone. Of course, it was one of the most populous provinces in China during Lottie Moon days. But he said there are 926 churches, 79 new churches have been started the previous year, 4,000 meeting points uh, in the church. And this was on the Shantung Peninsula, where the Shantung Revival took place uh, in the 1920s and 30s with Charles Culpepper and Bertha Smith, another story. So, so this whole area and what God was doing in China when we were there was just one of the most phenomenal things in, uh, I, I would say, in, in Christian history since the New Testament. And what was happening in many places all over China was, uh, was highlighted in, in this particular area with the legacy of Lottie Moon and her contemporaries. One of the pictures I love in the book is a picture of you and, and your wife, um, Bobby, uh, at that well where uh, she, it, your wife is seated and you're, you have this bucket. And it, it says that uh, the Rankins pause to refresh themselves with water from the well Lottie used while living. At, and then it's the name of her house, Little Crossroads. I mean, that had to be an amazing experience to think you're drinking from uh, the same well that Lottie would have have drunk from, and uh, I did make it home with the roof tile from her house. <laughs> oh, so con- contra- con- you you have uh, contraband uh, Baptist relics now. <laughs> now I, I, I didn't take it off the roof; it was there on the ground, but it had fallen from from her roof, and uh, wow. yeah. So that's a, a, a memento, a memory of that experience. So, uh, and of course, uh, you know, China has continued to, to grow and, and I, you know, I'm sure it's even a, a much different place than it was even uh, almost, you know, 23 years ago. But one of the things about Lottie Moon, and we can now move into this sort of uh, indigeneity that begins, but Lottie Moon also has the distinction of being our first woman to open a new mission station. So though she is going to spend this early part of her career there in what was then called Tung Chow, today Ping Lai, she will move inland for a period of time, though she will move back to Tung Chow, and she begins a new mission in the sort of uh, central region in Shandong uh, of Ping Tu. And it looks like you guys went there too. So tell us about uh, Lottie's ministry in Pingtu, your journey, and some of the things that uh, uh, mark her ministry uh, there. Well, Pingtu wasn't far from uh, Ping Lai. Uh, it's kind of in, in the outlying area. But, but a little background, and again, on the personality and relationships with Lottie Moon, very strong-willed in her own op- opinion, uh, and you got to have some empathy with her colleagues. 
you know, when she reacted to what they were doing and didn't go along with the consensus or the way things were being done and assisted in her own way. Uh, when she first arrived, she taught in the girls' school that uh, Mrs. Crawford uh, had started. And uh, th- there was just something about working under the authority of others. <laughs> Uh, she got permission to start her own school and uh, in the northern part of the, the city. This was back in Peng Lai. So, so that was kind of a break, you know, moving out of the Crawford's home and getting her own house. Well, that was unprecedented uh, for a single woman and so forth. But uh, she, while she appreciated, uh, you know, the girls' school and teaching, she became frustrated with just such an indirect way of, we might say, evangelism, of of proselytizing, of planning the gospel, you know, through teaching children and girls and and through the schools. And she was just kind of compelled to do more direct evangelism in the village. And even though she wasn't supposed to, uh, she would go out uh, on her own and was with local believers and shared the gospel. And of course, everywhere she would went, go outside the city, uh, she was kind of an enigma, but people were more hospitable and curious and would welcome her. Whereas in the city, she would often go about and people would call her foreign devil. And that's uh, when she began to adopt Chinese clothing uh, and, uh, you know, really began to identify the people uh, she's quoted as saying, if we are going to win people as converts, we must first win them to our friendship. And so uh, uh, she was uh, began to identify, and this wasn't difficult because we haven't mentioned it. She was very, very small, four foot, three inches tall. Amazing. Now, we we look on someone, some of our friends that are five feet or four foot ten, you know, they are really, really short. But think of her as just four foot three. So she could dress like Chinese and not really stand out and with her language skills, readily identify uh, them as well. But she would go around and uh, and just share the gospel in homes and then move to another little village or community area and share the gospel and so forth. And uh, Mrs. Holmes, uh, another missionary, veteran missionary, would often go with her and was very sympathetic and uh, involved in that as well. But uh, uh, one of the the, the quotes that we we found in in her stories was they'd been to 10 different communities and villages, you know, stopping in each one, sharing the gospel, interacting with people and uh, her workers set down the sedan chair <laughs> uh, after 10 villages, and Mladi said, I cannot do any more missionary work today. I've got to go home and rest. And immediately people just surrounded her. And she said, we have the words of eternal life and must speak them to the people in spite of our weariness. Mm. And wow. so that was just so inspirational yes. to how she just totally gave of herself, and she was frustrated with having to teach. So when she moved out to Ping Tu, uh, she had relinquished her school to some other missionaries who had come, and she uh, centered her outreach, uh, village outreach was what she did 
the rest of her career. And so several things she ran into. Uh, she was very convicted that uh, women should not teach and be an authority over men, but she would not allow men to come into the house when she was sharing the gospel, but would often reflect they would crowd around the window to hear what she was saying and occasionally slip in. And uh, this upset her greatly, but uh, when she was criticized for this, uh, she immediately retorted, all right, where are the men? When are you going to send some men <laughs> missionaries to do this? One of the things I loved in the book is it sounds like you guys had someone helping do some research and you found in Ping Tu what you think was Lottie Moon's house. And yeah, actually, tell us about that. Uh, when the WMU celebrated their centennial in 1888, which was seven years before we went, uh, they, you know, promoting tourism, they had uh, a lot of cooperation with the Chinese, uh, you know, local people, officials and tourism department and so forth. And, and they were trying to identify these places back then, which was a real asset to our trip that this had uh, preceded us. But the local tourism director was trying to find her house in Ping Tu. Of course, they had more or less identified the, the house at Little Crossroads. Uh, in Ping Lai. And, uh, you know, all of these neighborhoods, just houses built side by side and the little alleyways, they all look the same, the same area. Uh, they knew that she lived in one of these areas that existed back in that day, but which one, which house. And uh, he was in a barbershop one day and uh, heard one of the men saying the house that he lived in that his grandfather had bought from an American named La T. Mu. <laughs> wow, there you go. Can't and get so, much closer uh, he than went that. with him, and that's how they identified uh, where that uh, that house was. But that that day was very meaningful as we moved from several little villages and communities. You mentioned Shaolin. Uh, there's no church there now, but still a strong group of believers that are lay, led by a layman that meet in his home. And then in the village of Huangxin, there's still a, a significant church building there uh, that has existed and uh, of course, I think they, they had prepared the villages that this group of Americans were coming. And a large group, uh, a half a dozen, eight very, very old, wrinkled, bent over women came out of the church and welcomed us. And they were fourth generation Christians. Now, this was in 1990s. Lottie left there in uh, 1912, nice. they could have been in the nursery <laughs> Wow! when Lottie Moon was there, and certainly they gave testimony, and so they had uh, stories and testimonies, and their, to see them and their faithfulness and uh, of, of serving the Lord and living the Lord in that kind of environment and atmosphere and how the God had sustained it over the years was tremendous. And so they sang for us the Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, which is known as the Lottie Moon song. In fact, uh, the tune is identified in our hymnals 
as China. That's yes. the, right. yeah. the tune. But they sang all six verses. I don't think as a child I ever knew there were six verses to, <laughs> no. to this song. And, of course, we joined them in singing, and it was just such a touching and precious experience. Dr. Rankin, one thing that um, a lot of our church members would know about is um, um, the Lottie Moon, these uh, plain tea cakes, these Virginia tea cakes. And um, so in this house that um, that may well have been hers um, there in Ping Tu, um, this is, there's kind of an oven where she may have actually baked uh, these cookies that that were sort of uh, um, used to attract children um, to be able to come and then to hear the gospel message. Yeah, and I, I know that uh, Women's Missionary Union has kind of propagated that recipe and the story of how she used uh, baking cookies to uh, give out to the children, uh, you know, in the neighborhood and in the churches. But it, it was interesting to realize that that had been handed down and still uh, was carried on in China, that recipe. And they're known as Lottie Moon cookies. So any other memories, uh, Dr. Rankin, as we, we come to a, a conclusion of this wonderful journey? Anything else you want to share with us uh, about uh, China or your return to America and how this reoriented your thinking of the life and the ongoing legacy of Lottie Moon? Of course, things that stood out to me, you know, being president of the International Mission Board and kind of a self-identified missiologist, you know, how were things done? Uh, I, I was impressed with, uh, like, uh, you know, her advocating and uh, both at the point in which single women could be missionaries and then uh, due to her advocacy, where single women could have their own uh, house. And then uh, for single women like her to do village evangelism, rather than just being uh, marginalized to teach in a school or do social work or, or, or something, and then being the pioneer and advocate to adopt Chinese clothing, you know, and uh, indigenous lifestyle, when all the other missionaries were isolating themselves in compounds, still wearing their suits and ties as, you know, as Europeans. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were seen as foreign devils, and she identifies with the Chinese. But even in the indigenous work, uh, this is one of the biggest things that really stood out to me when she said, we are opposed to building foreign chapels thinking them to be a great mistake in China. A humble room with a few plain benches in Chinese style would be proper, and if in time we have converts, they should provide their own place of worship. So she was way ahead of her times in terms of a indigenous church planning strategy that would always be self-sufficient and independent and not create dependency on missionary funds of building churches and exporting a, a Western style uh, uh, of approach to, uh, you know, to evangelism. But, but to move on uh, toward the end of her, her ministry and her life and career, uh, you know, factors and circumstances really contributed to her being immortalized in a, a unique way. Uh, 
later, uh, Japan attacked. There were, were bombing. Uh, there was a point when all the missionaries had evacuated, uh, and Lady Moon was the only one that stayed behind in Ting Chow. And then the Boxer Rebellion followed that in the early part of the 20th century, and very anti-foreign. And uh, the missionaries, including Lottie Moon, had to evacuate to Japan for nine months. And when they came back, the economy had been destroyed. Uh, The country was in chaos. There were droughts. There were famine. And people just began to uh, stream into Ping Tu and uh, Ping Lai. I think she was still in Ping Tu at the time. I mean, literally starving to death. And, you know, she would just share the meager... uh, uh, amount of food that she had had, and this was recession was even affecting uh, uh, the United States as well. Missionary salaries were reduced from six hundred dollars to five hundred dollars a year, and uh, so she she gave away, sold her belongings, helped cared for Chinese, and fed them, and uh, her her health began to fail, and her colleagues finally said we they had to. Uh, put her on a boat and get her back to the United States if there was any hope of her surviving. And when she got on that ship in in, uh, 1912 uh, with Cynthia Miller, who was to accompany her, uh, she weighed 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, just just think of a small child, you know, 50 pounds, uh, how emaciated her body, body was at that time. So it really was a life of of faith and and sacrifice. And you know, to think of the of her dying on uh, December twenty fourth, and uh, just sort of uh, on Christmas Eve, and and uh, there was Cynthia Miller leading her uh, in her last lucid moments and singing "Jesus Loves Me," and and uh, just I mean, if, if that doesn't stir your heartstrings, and of thinking of how. Um, you know, we, for whatever reason that the support had not come and that people had, um, you know, that, that she had felt the need to, um, give away so much of her food and gotten in this condition. Um, you're right. This is, this is a story that you can't help but tell it and be moved deeply by thinking of, of what this lady, um, sacrificed and, and how she calls all of us. Um, to to greater um, joy-filled sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Jerry Rankin, thank you for being our guest on Missions History Podcast. We, we This is the place that we remember the past to inspire the future. I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.